cliffcentral.com. All right. Welcome to Tuesday morning on cliffcentral.com. Jack McClante and I are here to keep you company. Yep. Um, we recorded at the end of last week a really interesting discussion. It was on Friday, actually, so it's as fresh as can be, with Mark Oppenheimer, who, apart from being an advocate, who has done some really interesting and, I think, really powerful, meaningful, important free speech related cases mm. in South Africa. Uh, he, he also happens to be a political philosopher and someone who studied the origin of so much political terminology that he was obviously the right guy to get in to talk about definitional concepts around politics, elections. We've got this important election year ahead of us. Part of what we try to do here at Cliff Central, we hopefully entertain, mm. we hopefully empower, we hopefully inspire, but most importantly, that we give you information. Mm -hmm. And this conversation that Jack and I had with Mark, am I right, Jack? This was I, I enjoyed this probably more than anything else we've done in the last couple of weeks. I thought this was fascinating. I, I, I think we thread the needle between information and entertainment in the perfect way. I, it's one of the, that that I'm not saying I'm not saying let's compliment ourselves. I'm I'm saying the I'm, conversation with Mark. No, listen, Gareth, <laughs> I'm going to compliment us. Okay, I think we deserve it. We did an <laughs> okay, amazing job because we had an amazing chat with an, an amazing individual. I know I've said amazing a couple of times, but it really is because, and it also opened up my eyes to a lot. Like a lot of us just uh, assume. A lot of things about the world we live in and the moment someone comes in and educates you and points you in the right direction that can only be a good thing only i certainly think this this is helpful mm. so here it is uh, democracy 101 brand new episode for you this morning and a conversation with mark oppenheimer about politics democracy yep. it's all happening right here cliffcentral.com good morning all right, it is time for another episode of Democracy 101. This is really where we get to the um, we get to grips with the definitional concepts of what exactly we're dealing with. Because yep. you can go out there and tell people, "Oh, you should register to vote," and they go, "What for?" Mm -hmm. And they're good arguments against and good arguments for it. For it, yeah, that's uh, true. Then people say, "Well, what sort of system do we really have?" Because people keep talking about democracy, but we're the Republic of South Africa, and what's the difference between? our democracy and uh, mob rule. Mm. What's the difference between a constitutional republic, which is what we technically are, and just any old democracy? Yep. So we're going to talk to someone who really knows these things. And uh, Jack and I decided to call on the very busy Mark Oppenheimer who managed to find time for us today. So Mark, really good to see you. How are you? Yeah, fantastic. Always lovely to be here. And you are very busy. You've been uh, in, in very, very exciting and interesting cases lately. Uh, and, and you're the guy who can help us figure out these technical definitions for starters. And then we can get into some of the philosophy because I think it's fascinating for people to understand and to know where these forms of government and these systems of government come from. And I remember studying in, in political science in the 90s. What, what, where all of this came from? Don't look at me like that, Jack. No, I said the nineties. Right? Don't, don't. Uh, I was a any... child. Yeah, I was well, a child. You, you, you carry on <laughs> looking down on me for that. But I remember we we learned all about the the different forms of government, systems of government, uh, and 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 structures of state all over the world, and it can be quite mind boggling. Mm. We then expect ordinary voters 
citizens to take time out of their day to learn about these things. And they don't have time. So let's just begin with, because it's the most hackneyed, overused word. People say, ah, we're even using it here, democracy 101. Ah, it's our democracy. We must defend our democracy. Our democracy is what we fought for. What democracy is just mob rule, though, isn't it? Yeah, so there's a substantive sense of democracy where you start to add other stuff into the bundle in a minimalist sense. And so the minimalist sense is going to be whatever the will of the people is, that's what we do. And then we start to add in side constraints because the people might have a pretty pernicious will. So, for example, yeah, like the you, people in this country wanted to execute uh, murderers, for example, and and then the state stepped in in state versus Makwanyane, as I remember, mm. and they said, "No, you guys can't just do whatever you want. We're a constitutional republic," proving right at the beginning, before we'd even had our first elections, as I recall, the, the case started before then and ended before then, that no, this is not how we're going to operate. Which goes against the thing that most people think democracy is. They think, well, if there are 10 people in a room and eight of them or nine of them decide they want to do something, so what? Where for the one or two people who didn't uh, get what they wanted? They'll just steamroll over you. Yeah, so it's called the counts majoritarian dilemma. So the idea is what if the mob wants something pernicious like executing people? So and how do we protect minority groups that might be very unpopular? Well, we entrench rights. So the idea is that those things are a check on the will of the majority. So democracies don't necessarily have to have checks. You could, for example, just say, everybody put your hands up mm-hmm. um, and whoever wins, wins, and we'll do whatever they say. So if the idea is, well, we don't really like uh, gays and Jews and Muslims in our society, who wants to vote for their execution? Okay, we've got enough numbers. Kill you know, them. Yeah, kill them. So that's why you need some kind of restraint on democracy. Also, how you get there. So we're... If you think about Athens or you think about a town hall where you could actually ask people what their view is, that's very unwieldy in a society of 60 million people. So you Mm. can have different forms of democracy, right? So in in the original instance, and Jack, you'll know that this came from, the reason to have this show and to have Mark in here, came from the fact that you and Duma on on a show that you did were asking people, what do you think democracy means? And everyone had a different definition. Mm Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that you can now Google these things, everyone had a different definition. So let's go into where it comes from and, and look at the etymology of the word and then look at, at ancient Greece, which is the origin, and, and how it used to work then and why, as you say, with the numbers of people we have now, it's impossible to make a practical go of classical democracy. Yeah, so demos from the Greek meaning the people um, and so rule by the people. You can you have us. Yeah, so you have these wonderful different thought experiments in Plato's Republic where he says, what are the different kinds of governmental system we could have? And he has a a really strong takedown of democracy. Hmm. So he says, imagine that you're on a ship and you're trying to decide who the captain should be. He says, well, you could take a vote. And the person that is most likely to win is the person who is the most charming, the most good-looking, the most popular, not necessarily the person who actually knows how to steer the ship. Mm. And so you're, you know, that's all fine and, you know, fine and good when everything's sunny and the guy sort of pretends to move the wheel around. And then a storm comes and then you realize, oh, no, you know, we've picked uh, Gareth to steer the ship and he's really good looking, but he doesn't know what he's doing behind the wheel. Um, And then you think, wouldn't we rather have an expert? Shouldn't we rather have politicals than philosopher kings? He says, well, the worry, of course, with having the set of experts uh, running your country 
is that um, you know it's very small and people who aren't democratically accountable, maybe they're going to take all the money, maybe they're going to abuse their power. So he says, well, I've got a really good solution. We'll ensure that the philosopher kings uh, have almost no wealth at all. They'll be trained from a very young age to kind of lead austere lives. They'll get the best kinds of wisdom, and they will really care about the people. Um, and there is a sense in which Plato's idea of the philosopher kings lives on. So you might think it lives on in the judiciary. So judges don't earn a packet of money. They really care about uh, truth and justice and things like that. And they're this check on the will of the people, like you mentioned in Makwanyane, where the judges say, we don't care that the people want to execute people. We have a constitutional we're right We're not doing it. We're not doing it. And so we're going to use the philosopher king's wisdom. All right, but Plato almost read the future. And we, we those very scenarios that he was talking about on the ship are precisely the means by which we seem to elect leaders now. Mm. I was talking to a group of women when George W. Bush and Al Gore were running against each other for the U.S. presidency. And the women were all saying, we like Al Gore, he's better looking. I thought, this is actually the best argument against women having the vote, what I just witnessed, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't mean to just be controversial for the sake of it. But sure. Does everybody deserve a vote? I know that's what we fought for in South Africa is everyone gets a vote, one man, one vote. You know, freedom meant that. The, the franchise was the ultimate goal there. But it seems that it hasn't made us happier. Why is that? <laughs> yes. So I suppose one of the things you've got to ask yourself is, is a system of government aimed towards maximizing happiness? What is the purpose of your government? Um, one thing you might... Uh, take the view of is that governments have been behind so much suffering in the world. If you think about how many people have died at the hands of government, mm -hmm. especially the ones that claim to be there for the people. So if you think about, uh, you know, communism is a system which is built around this idea of everybody should share and, you know, everybody's going to be in this together. And that's a system which has led to the deaths of 100 million people. Jesus. So you might think that it is better to have a lot less government. Uh, you know, there's this classical Republican idea of limited government that only those core functions um, where it's necessary to have the states involved, like uh, your police force, like your judiciary, like your roads, maybe that stuff should be done by the government. But other areas, government does very badly, very crookedly. Um, and so you might want a lot less room for that kind of stuff. You might say that the idea of direct democracy is a good idea on a small scale level. And so you can imagine... Um, small communities making decisions for themselves. Uh, there's this idea that we must impose everyone's will on everyone all the time, and that's generally going to make people unhappy, mm. um, as opposed to allowing them to self-determine. Uh, how 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 would you suggest we would go about attaining such a thing? Like, would it be in our best interest to try get communities to come up with their own constitution, in a sense, and then um, look at it as a federal? kind of thing where everyone kind of does their own thing, but we have a guiding principle on how to treat one another. It, would that be a better solution? Don't to, we already have some of that to some degree? Obviously yeah. we can't make national laws, Law, but, sure. but I mean, if you look at body corporates and estates mm. and, uh, you know, cluster housing, these people have an agreement. This is how everyone will behave. There's some sort of enforcement of these things, whether they're right or wrong. It can lead to all kinds of trouble, obviously, just like the national laws can. But isn't that – that's already happening, but it doesn't necessarily make for a political society. Well, 
I run this philosophy discussion show called Brain Nevat, and we had on a guy called Mike Humer, who's uh, an anarchist. And he says, let's take that body corporate model, which is entirely private. So he says everything inside that society is private. The state has nothing to do with it. Hmm. They build the roads. They maintain the security. Everybody pays in their levies. If you don't pay, we evict you. Okay? Hmm. And then you become part of someone else's society. And he says, that's how everything should look. So, <laughs> And in some senses, that is what it looks like for a lot of South Africans. So I mentioned some things that the state does. Um, it also does other things like schooling and education. My bet is that you don't use the, pu- the public sector, you use the private versions of those things because they're much better. You don't want to die in a government hospital and you don't want your kid being indoctrinated in the public school or not getting an education at all or not having their teacher be there for three years of their 12-year education. Mm. So you pay someone private to do it. Yes. And you have some of the best uh, you know, private um, resources in the world in South Africa. Mm. So in some senses, we are living that anarchist dream already. There's just this parallel public state. Um, and it's shrinking because Which, of by the way, you don't have the option of not paying for. Yes. Because yes. they will take your money at gunpoint. Yes. So in other words, the state has this uh, monopoly on violence in a particular way, which is that it's all fun and games and we love you until you stop contributing towards keeping us going, in which case we'll put you in a jail cell at the, end of the barrel of a gun. Sounds fair, right? Not not by my estimation. Okay, so going back to the beginning of this conversation, we talk about democracy, the will of the people, government by the people. That's one system. What are the differences between a republic and the setup of a republic and the setup of a democracy? As, as it might have been in the beginning, the origins, and where it is today. Yes, so I suppose there's a sense in which you have these additional safeguards uh, against this democratic will in the republic, you might conceive of your representatives differently as well. So you can imagine this direct democracy, which we say could work at a small level and does work very well in body corporates, just doesn't work at a national level. Uh, you could have referendums on things. You know, you could, um, Al Gore had thought of, uh, you know, it's the early days of the internet. You know, Bill Clinton had said the first presidential email like four years before when he was running for office. And he said, we'll just run everything on the internet. We'll just have all these polls. Um, it's not what's what's happened. Instead, you have these representatives. And if you think about America, you've got two different houses, and we have it in South Africa as well, although it plays no role at all. Um, so you have people representing congressional districts, so small mm-hmm. areas, and so you know you care about what your constituency says, and you're there for a very short period of time. So you're in Congress for two years, continual election cycles. Or you're in the Senate, uh, where there's only 100 senators, and there you you know represent your state. So you've got this other kind of interest at play. Uh, and both of those places are generating federal laws. So America really is federal in a sense that you have laws for the nation, laws for particular states, and then let's say laws in your city. So, And that can include different levels of tax as well. So if you go to New York, things are so expensive because city tax, state tax, federal tax, Mm. Uh, whereas you go to Texas, things are a lot cheaper because they did away with a lot of that. Uh, But you have this room for autonomy in a system like that where you can say, we just want a different lifestyle where we live. We don't want to... uh, live in the way that New Yorkers live when we live in Oklahoma. Um, our needs are different. There is also a sense in which um, they have a system where no matter how big your state is, you only get two senators. So, you know, you could be in Wyoming, which is underpopulated, or you could be in California, which is um, the most populous state uh, in, in America, and you each get two senators. Mm. But you're going to get a lot more congressmen. Um, and then you have this electoral college system for determining the president. So there's a sort of check system in place to ensure that it's not just um, one man, one vote that's determining who's in power. Is this to look after the the interests of minorities? Is this to keep things fairer? 
Well, arguably you run into some problems with that. So in some senses it's to protect uh, rural areas because they're less dense than cities, and so it has an effect of protecting that. You have notorious gerrymandering in the states. So what you do is you try and draw up your voting district in a particular way. The best way to do it is to pack in lots of the opposition into one area. So 100% of the people vote Democrat in this area. And then you want 55% Republican, 45% Democrat in the other areas where you can then win. So all the other votes get knocked out. Is that what redlining is? I think I've heard something along those lines where they kind of um, outline where their constitution, well, their constituents, excuse me, where their constituents Red, are. Redlining was more to do with, uh, try, it was almost like an attempt at a Group Areas Act in the urban parts of America. Right, okay. And that was in the 60s. Um, it, it very much ended in the 70s and mm. has been rightly decried ever since. It was okay. a lot like our Group Areas Act. You know, you have certain parts Pro- of certain yeah, cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for whites, that's for blacks. And, and mm. they tried that in America. They also, they fiddled with it by lowering rent in certain areas and, and raising hiking the it rent up in, in certain up there. Yeah, okay. Yes, so yeah, redistricting different. So it's interesting in South Africa, there's this um, call to change how our democracy works. So we have um, proportional representation. So basically each party has a list. It determines uh, which candidates will go to parliament based on that list. Mm-hmm. And then based on how people vote, um, you get told this is how many people you get to put into seats. Now we used to have a constituency-based system where the people in a particular area vote for so-and-so and that person gets to go ahead. So someone like Helen Sussman you know, was the only um, person who acted for the Democratic Party. Uh, she was alone in parliament for many years um, and ran the district of Houghton. So uh, the concern with having the constituency-based system is that you can then redistrict in such a manner that you can ensure that minority parties will never get representation. So you can always drown them out. In practice, we've actually done this in South Africa with um, cities. So some people will remember there used to be a mayor of Santon. Mm-hmm. Um, we now have a mayor of Johannesburg, which governs this gigantic area with people who have very disparate interests from each other. You know, it's not clear that um, those that live in uh, Soweto have the same interests as those that live in Santon. You might want someone who has, you know... But, uh, but okay, so w- w- which is optimal for South Africa? Because for the politicians what's happened turns out to work well for them, particularly for the politicians who are gerrymandering and who are trying to squeeze out the minorities here, there and everywhere. And we know they're only interested in being re-elected. And very often on the party list, it depends where you are on the list, whether or not you get a position. So there's a lot of jostling for power there. But what is optimal for the citizens? Do you think a constituency-based system or a party list system is preferable? So the ideal is that you can hold that particular person to account. So you can say, I know who my representative is. And yeah, if- Jack is my guy in Santon. If Jack Mutlante doesn't win the election, then someone else will. I'll know who that person is too. And yes. I'll be able to go to their house and complain if my electricity's off. That's the idea. Now, <laughs> uh, there's a couple of difficulties with this idea. So first of all, we actually have a system like that at a municipal level where you've got a ward councillor, mm. and so you can see that guy's face on a poll. Right. Um, and we also have a top-up PR system so that you know you don't have the gerrymandering imbalances. Um, but it's always been the case that that individual who's running uh, is running his campaign not with his own money but with party money. So yeah. if he goes off the path and starts you know doing something that's different to the party agenda – uh, they're not going to fund his next election. So I, I know someone who's a, a Tory parliamentarian where they have in the UK this first-past-the-poll system. 
first past the post. And uh, he says, you know, there's very little independence that you find from people on that basis. Um, so the parties really are the dominant force in politics. There is an interesting situation that's arising now, which is uh, if you think about Johannesburg, I mean, he is uh, not run by the will of the majority, but by the minority. Uh, our last two mayors, and the current mayor is from Al Jamaa. Mm. That party has, I think, two or three seats um, in a city council of 170. So you small parties can sort of play power broker uh, and have this enormous amount of power. You had a similar thing happening in Port Elizabeth uh, with Bobani, um, only two seats there for the UDM, um, apparently incredibly corrupt guy. So one uh, reform that's been raised by the DA is to say, well, you should have a threshold system. If you're going to have proportional representation, then you have to go so far before you get seats, which is what they do in Germany. Right. So in order to get seats in the Bundestag, you have to have 5%. If you don't, you get nothing. And then you redistribute the smaller amounts. Um, not good for the small parties, um, but might lead to a lot of stability. So one of the difficulties that we have in coalition governments is that they're unstable. Joburg has had right. a variety mm. of different mayors. And so you might think for the good of the people, you want some stability there. Has, is there a system that you've come across so far that would, as, as Gareth asked, as far as being optimal for our country as it stands. Have you come across a system that would, well, nothing fits perfectly, but that would be kind of suited for the country as it is right now in 2024? Well, you know the classic Winston Churchill quote, which is democracy is the worst system except for all others. Right, yeah. <laughs> so I suppose there are things that I'd want alongside our democracy, mm. one of which is a mass dismantling of government power. I would like government to stay out of most things. I think our government in particular has the reverse Midas touch. Mm -hmm. Whatever it touches turns to shit. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, whereas our private sector really, you know, is incredible. Um, mm -hmm. It's, I think, what gives most people hope. And if you if you think, Mark, come on, you uh, radical libertarian, how dare you say something like this? Ask yourselves, when was the last time you interfaced with government? It's probably at home affairs office because you had to. Yeah. And it was incredible. Although so many unpleasant. of the banks have even taken over that function. Yes, mm. and and aren't you so happy I'm that the delighted. private sector Are you stepped joking? in so mm. you can get your passport? No, this, this, because uh, truthfully, the private sector is a lot more efficient than even any if you government don't, Even if you don't like them and you think they're capitalist swine who are trying to predate upon all of our money, mm. there's no difference between that argument and the argument that we have to pay tax at gunpoint, which we discussed earlier, and you get nothing in return. In return at least yeah. in the private sector, you're getting a product in return or Definitely. a service. And if you don't like it, you walk. So if you think right. about it, if you say- They can't force mm, you to use their It's product. a choice, yeah. Imagine that instead of having um, the variety of different cell providers we had, you just had government um, telephones. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we would uh, still be on 2G. It would cost mm -hmm. an absolute Sounds fortune. Sounds so bad. Yeah. Government think, phones. Think about telecom. Just think about how no one uses those that service anymore. They go, the private sector is amazing. There's some competition. Unfortunately, this is still a regulated sector by the state, so there are only so yeah. many providers around. Um, but- uh, you've got this variety. If you don't like MTN, you go, I'm going to go to Vodacom, which means there's competition, which means there's good pricing. Think about if, if South African government was, uh, instead of allowing a variety of people to make cell phones, they were like, we're going to make a South African cell phone. How terrible it would be. And think how cell phone prices have crashed over time. My domestic worker can have a five-star phone for almost no money. Uh, mm. And she can start a side business because of that. Like, yeah. mm. You're right, capitalists aren't doing it for the good of the people. They're doing it out of self-interest, but it happens to be incredibly good for everyone else. And mm. that's, a, that's an honest motive. 
Whereas the people who pretend to care about you and promise you the world and don't get your actually votes, give a shit, yeah. yeah, and then they disappear. So, all right, to go back to the definitional stuff, and I'm sorry if I'm being boring here, but I I watched a clip the other day about how the U.S. Constitution was drafted and how the biggest concern of the founding fathers of the U.S. Uh, when they when they managed to gain independence from Britain and during the period just before when they were drafting the Bill of Rights, um, and and part of their worry was democracy. It wasn't that they were worried about autocracy in King George. Mm. It was that they were worried that the the country they were establishing would be mob ruled. So most of the checks and balances in the U.S. Constitution are there because of that fear. Is that the same for our Constitution? What were the when they drafted at Cadessa, the South African constitution, which we know is the supreme law of the land, we are a constitutional republic by definition. What does that mean for us and what were their, their biggest concerns when they drafted that? Very interesting. I mean, I think South Africa comes at a, out of a time of um, an oligopoly. So you had a very small um, group of people running the country. You had m- most people disenfranchised of the vote done in a racialized manner. And so there's a sense in which this is unjust, this is not sustainable because if we don't change the system, we're going to have a bloody revolution. Um, and so we have to have some level of compromise and we're weary about state power because we've seen it abused by the National Party during apartheid. And so you want some checks um, on government. So we do follow to some extent the classic model of having you know three different branches. So you've got you know your presidents and uh, in the executive, you've got your legislator whose role is to sort of draft mm-hmm. the legislation and then and you've the got judiciary. your judiciary who are interpreting it. And uh, I think often I, I take it for granted that everybody knows that and then I realize, you know, when I talk about my cases, people often think about judges as if they were legislatures. Mm-hmm. So they think it's the judge's job to tell us what the law should be. And this is an ongoing debate in America, for example, activist judges who do try to make law they try to interpret law, but then they also try to change law. They have a progressive slant or they have a conservative slant, and they're really just meant to interpret it, not their job to make and write law. Yeah, I mean, the best example of this is uh, Roe versus Wade and it being overturned in the Dobbs case. So That's the famous abortion yeah. case. Yes. And so what you have in that original case uh, is the judges say – we think that there is a constitutional right to abortion founded in the right to privacy. Okay, now the American Constitution doesn't have a right to privacy in it. The right to privacy was found in a prior case, which is in um, what they call the enumerations clause. So the idea that there, when the when states states had certain rights, individuals had certain rights before the Constitution came into place, and that the Bill of Rights wouldn't limit those rights. So the one view is to say, well, we think there was this hidden right sitting around. And on that basis, we're going to prohibit the federal government from uh, – well, we're going to prohibit the federal government and all states from instituting uh, abortion bans. And then they went and drafted particular rules. So they said, if you want to have abortions, you know, these are the weeks. This is based on a trimester system. And so they really drafted rules. Um, and what you had then was 49 years of immense tension in America where it suddenly became the number one job of anybody who um, was – uh, anti-abortion to say we need to change the composition of the bench. So every Republican mm-hmm. candidate would say, I'm going to appoint judges uh, who are pro-life. Okay, and it eventually became a, It became a massive preoccupation. Massive, massive. Still is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, now what's interesting is so Dobbs comes in and that court, 6-3, to three, says um, Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided. 
we don't think that the constitution says anything on this. It's just silent on it, which means this is actually a question for the demos. The people must decide what the rules are on abortion. So they'll say there's two clear interests here. There's, in other words, a woman's right to bodily autonomy, and there's the interests of this uh, uh, developing uh, fetus. And so let the people decide. It's a contested thing. Not everyone agrees on this, you know, religiously, philosophically. So let them decide. So they don't uh, ban abortion, which is how the press sort of dealt with it. They basically say, we're removing the prior rule, and every state can make its own rule. And what's, what's happened is that you've had democracy in action. You've had a whole bunch of people vote on it. And surprise, surprise, what have they done? In the votes on their constitution, they've said, we want to entrench <laughs> a right to abortion in our states. Oh, my God. Um, so people could make that decision themselves. Also, the federal government, if it gets the numbers, um, could make a federal law using the will of the people to say there is federal protection of abortion. Um, it could go the other way. You could have a variety. So in Texas, for example, um, they've produced legislation which says you can't get an abortion after six weeks. Um, you know, In other states, you can get an abortion up until birth. Um, so you've got this variety. If you don't like living in one area, you can move in the other area. Um, but Mark, it's not just the role of government to make laws. And, and to enforce the laws or to interpret the laws, the three branches that you've spoken about now. Our law is the constitution and it also creates the structures of government. So we have chapter 11 institutions, chapter nine institutions. We have various things, various creations that are there to also protect and conserve democracy and look after the rights of minorities and make sure that there's at least a modicum of fairness and checks and balances happening. Do you think in South Africa there are sufficient checks on things like the executive? Because people have started to just expect that the president can rule by fiat. Um, and in many cases all over the world you see executive authority being abused like this. Is, is our constitution able to prevent that kind of abuse here? Can I take you back in time a couple of years <laughs> to a very uh, dark time in humanity's history, uh, back to 2020, where basically overnight, whatever your country's constitution said didn't matter. States said, you can't leave your house, mm -hmm. uh, you can't run your business. Mm -hmm. um, for the sake of your safety, we are running things in an autocratic way. And people just fell down like sheep. Largely. Um, interesting enough, I was involved in a lot of anti-lockdown litigation at the time. Um, and pushed back some of the absolutely crazy things that were done by executive fiat. Thank so, you. I've never been able to say that, but thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, one of the craziest ones I always thought was that there was a ban on e-commerce, like early oh. on, like three weeks in. Mm. Um, and so the idea was um, we're going to shut down all the brick-and-mortar stores so it would be unfair to allow other people to trade online. So they're not allowed to trade online either. Um, and so we, we wrote to the DTI and said, you do realize that some of those brick and mortar stores would be able to continue surviving by being able to sell online, right? And all those people who work for them wouldn't be rendered uh, starving and homeless. Oh, oh, okay, fine, we'll change our decision. Um, but you had just so much crazy, crazy stuff going on that time. So you realize that um, your constitution only protects you so much. But we did engage in a fair amount of attacks on it. Judges, I think, were quite wary about what to do. Um, there were a couple of big wins. And when I kind of put my head above the parapet, I realized that South Africa was kind of unique on this front, that a lot of countries just took it, that there wasn't much pushback. And it's one of the things that I think we can say that uh, is quite impressive here. Our civil society is good at pushing back against government excess. Um, I'm not so sure about those Chapter 9 institutions. I, I bet that you could name a couple of, of the 
top of your head, um, one being the public protector. I'm sure everybody is uh, very jubilant about the job that's been done by the public protector in the last couple of oh, years. Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it was it was great for a little while there while they were standing up to the government instead of against the people. Yes. But I think, you know, for the most part, the majority of us didn't know what um, the public protector was or who that person was up until Jacob Zuma and the fire pool. And, uh, yes. Can you name three other cases no. that the Off the top of my did? head, nope. No, right. Nope. So in other words, all of us go, yeah, then Kandla case, that was great. Mm-hmm. Now, I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing the advocates who were involved in that case, and I got to interview Tilly Mononcella about it. One of the things I said to them at the time, and I did it in Cliff Central Studios, which was great, um, I said, there's this little worry that there's always the view that the public protector gave these advisory opinions and they weren't binding. This is what made that office different. And the Constitutional Court changes that because Jacob Zuma is a bad man and we should whack him. Is there any worry that we now invest this office with this enormous amount of power that could be abused? I mean, Tuli is about to exit. And the viewers, yeah, I guess that that might be a concern. Um, but don't worry, we'll deal with that when it comes. There's that always an administrative review. <laughs> and so what happens, of course, is that you invest this office an enormous amount of power. And, of course, you have a fight to say who gets to wield the power. So Busasiwe gets in there. She's now Krabani. an EFF mm-hmm. uh, uh, MP. Um and, uh, you know, someone who maybe at times was trying to hold Cyril to account, um, but maybe for some other agenda. Um, but, yeah, it sort of doesn't seem like it was for the good of the people to protect them. The Human Rights Commission, I mean, one of those um, other Chapter 9s that I think in its early days did some quite impressive work. Um, I think a lot of people would struggle to tell you what it's been doing now. Or well, except for right getting thing. in the way of free speech and that sort of thing. Yeah, They are actively doing their best to make citizens the enemy. Yes. Rather than rather than doing what the Human Rights Commission should do, and that is to make sure that the government isn't abusing the people of this country. Yes. So but of see- course they're ideologues and the most of them are politically appointed, right? Yes. So this is the difficulty, right? Is um, I mean, you might think of as well of I was involved in litigation a year ago, we're still waiting for judgment, um, on cater deployment. So in the <laughs> state capture case, uh, Zondo identifies cater deployment as this very dangerous thing that can undermine our democracy on the basis that instead of ensuring that your public officials are the most competent, you know, the wisest, the philosopher kings, the first question is, are you a member of the party? Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have a deliberate strategy, uh, kind of amazing how open cards the NC plays, um, to say we must capture all levels of state power and private power. So our guys must be, you know, at universities and newspapers, um, you know, and in the civil service and everywhere and in the chapter nines. Um, And so... Zondo quickly points out you've got a dual loyalty. On the one hand, it's do whatever the party wants, okay? And the other one is do the things I'm supposed to do in my job. And he says the party inevitably triumphs. And he says that's how we're eroding democracy. So the DA brought some litigation. Every forum went in to back them up to say you must declare this care deployment policy unconstitutional and stop the ANC from using it. We'll see what the court decides on that front. But there is a sense in which when you create all these little institutions, these little mini bureaucracies and um, – alternate ways of uh, of adjudicating disputes. So a lot of those things are administrative. Instead of the judge deciding, we set up some little body that sort of decides and you know, there's a little fiefdom and it suddenly becomes a prize worthy of capture. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen that happen just time and time again. Whereas, as I say, you just don't have the problem in the private area. I mean, in the legal case, you sort of imagine, well, what could you do but go to a, in a, a public judge? Well, you can hire a private arbitrator. And that's what's happened in a lot of disputes is people say, I don't trust my judges. I'm not sure that they're competent enough to be able to decide this complicated commercial thing. But I know this guy. I've read his cases. He knows what he's talking about. We both trust him. Let's pay him to decide the dispute for us. 
Mark, you you are obviously an you know an extremely intelligent human being. You are deeply educated. What what advice would you give someone who's maybe listening to this podcast and has some sort of an issue that like some of the things that you pointed out, like the cadre deployment and so on and so forth? What recourse do we have as everyday South Africans? Do we come together and somehow fund? Uh, some sort of legal pursuit. What what is our recourse? Yes, I mean, what you're normally going to hear from people is get out and vote, right? Mm. So, I think we should talk later about why voting um, might be a waste of your energies and that you could spend it in better ways. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think you're in the right direction, which is there are some really good civil society organisations that are fighting the good fight. Mm. So, those organisations that pushed back against government excess. Um, were only able to do it because they got funding from the populace. So DSL Africa, for example, played a big role in a lot of the anti-lockdown stuff, as did AfriForum, as did Solidarity. Um, a lot of people know that Solidarity went and built a private university called Soltech. Mm. Um, under time, under cost, um, the largest payment that was made towards Soltech was 10 rand. Um, it cost 300 million rand. Um, that's just on basically... Um, crowdfunding. Fees from members. Crowdfunding, Crowd, exactly. Yeah. So there's this real like do it for ourselves kind of attitude. Um, I would say that if you're thinking about organizations that, you know, care about prosperity and wants Africa to work, you know, think about organizations like the Free Market Foundation headed by David and Sarah. Mm. You have this really stirring speech that some of you might have seen at the Rand Club that just went absolutely viral where he says the center will not hold. And what he means by that is the central government. So Africa has had this long history of being run by those in the central government. They've done a pretty terrible job during the colonial era, during apartheid, and now. And now it's time to have, as you say, federalism to distribute power. Mm. Uh, and you know, the Free Market Foundation has had a 50-year history of you know, holding government to account and ensuring that you know, everyone is able to, uh, to prosper. Can I ask you a question about how the legislature works? Because we, we could have at that juncture got into Cape independence, but I don't want to go there at this stage because that's still very much an open question and unlikely to succeed in any real way. They're bound into the sovereign republic of South Africa, whether they like it or not. And they would need an enormous amount of momentum to pull themselves free of us, even if everyone in the Western Cape was dead keen on it. The rest of the country would have to have a say so. I don't think that reality will stop them, though. Oh, well, then they'll be wasting votes, that's yeah. all. But the the legislature in this country consists of two houses. And you indicated, you kind of glossed over the, the, the second house, the National Council of Provinces, which used to be our Senate. In Britain, it's the House of Lords. In America, it's the Senate. Senate yeah. It's meant not just to rubber stamp legislation from the lower house, which is what ours does, but it's meant to perform a function in this country anyway, where it looks after the interests of that province, make sure that competing interests are weighed up by the provinces. Is that what actually happens or is it just a place we put traditional leaders to make them feel good about themselves? Is it a place that we deploy cadres who have no longer been able to make themselves useful in the executive or in the, in the lower house of, of our legislature? Is it just sheltered employment? Well... Can you think of an example of a piece of pernicious legislation where the NCOP said, over our dead bodies, will we allow this to be passed? No. <laughs> and I don't think anyone can. Mm. Yeah. I mean... I don't think there is an example of that. I think there were the smallest of possible changes to the hate speech bill um, that was suggested and I think ignored by the National Assembly. And that legislation was then voted through. 
That's, by the way, you mentioned the sort of threats to free speech rights. Um, the current regime in South Africa is that uh, if you commit an act of hate speech, you can be made to apologize, you can be made to pay a fine. Um, you can't have any sort of time behind bars. The hate speech bill changes that and you can get uh, you know, time behind bars. So that's going to be very interesting. And we'll see how freely and fairly it is used. Um, <laughs> but our constitution provides for free speech. Yes, it does. So is, is, is this the democracy over the republic that we were talking about earlier? Yes, and so it's one of those things where you hope that judges are able to um, play a role. But in this needs to then power. go to court. Yeah, and I think and the only way we'll know is once it's tested in the courts. Yes, I mean, there's an interesting thing. So I uh, ran this other show called Constitutional Landmarks, where I went and interviewed um, judges um, who were involved in the big constitutional court cases, and the counsel appeared for them. And you mentioned Makon Yane at the beginning of the show, so I interviewed Johan Krikler about it, and I interviewed um, Yvonne Mohora about it. And Johan said something very interesting to me. He said, this was an absolute hot potato question. It's 1995. It's the first case of the court hears. Um, so you do have sort of newly elected uh, government. And no one wants to touch it because they know that there's a big appetite for a death penalty. But it also is known that the death penalty was used to execute people for political reasons. Um, and he says, they didn't want to vote on it. It wouldn't have been popular. And they made us do it. And he says, it was our job to outlaw the death penalty. And he says, personally, he has absolutely no problem with the death penalty. As a judge sitting before, at the Supreme Court of Appeal, you know, uh, he confirmed death penalty. He may have sentenced people a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And he said, and they had it coming, they deserved it, and the, they deserved it in terms of the law. And then he says, and the law changed. When the Constitution came in, you had a right to life, and you therefore couldn't have a death penalty. So he took a very strict, you know, interpretation of the Constitution and applied it. You had Von Makara saying, well, you know, we now must embrace Ubuntu and then you, you know you, you are a, a person through other people and so if you annihilate that other person you know you yourself can't be here so it took this completely different approach you had you know LB Sachs talking about dignity and how it's an infringement on someone's dignity right to execute them so you had all these different ways of getting to the same route but the idea was parliament is too cowardly to decide this we must do it <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, Lindue Mazabuka, when she was a um, parliamentarian, saying that's how she saw the courts as well, that sometimes there are things that are just too difficult for parliament to deal with and they must decide. I think the difficulty with that line is when you start to get the philosopher kings to do too much of the heavy lifting, what happens when they become bad philosophers? So what happens when uh, they have an agenda they want to run? And so one of the questions that's become incredibly important in our society is how do we get our judges? So we get our judges through the Judicial uh, Services Commission. So our constitution is kind of unique in the sense that we came up with this compromise of how do we appoint judges? Okay, we'll have some academics, we'll have some lawyers, and we'll have some politicians, and they'll sit on this 27-person panel, and then they'll interview judges and decide. So you have someone like David Untalter, um, who's, I'd say, one of the most internationally regarded jurists in the world. Sure. Um, you know, was uh, has you know played the role of a judge on many occasions at the Supreme Court of Appeal. You know, he's um, done acting since the Constitutional Court. He was involved in the World uh, Trade Organization, um, and has applied for a job at the Constitutional Court five times uh, and at the Supreme Court of Appeal. And every time has been told no, in the most uh, humiliating of all ways, in the most anti-Semitic ways. Mm -hmm. um, so there, you can see that this body, which is meant to play a role in deciding who the judges are in a way that's fair and is good for the law has a massive agenda, um, and it's become really, really embarrassing to the point where the JSC itself has had to kind of be taken to court and apologize and occasionally reform and, you know, let a good guy in every so often. But there is but a I mean, you've got people like, uh, you know, you speak about David Unterhalter's qualifications just as a, a, a jurist, but 
you've got people who are on the JSC who have absolutely no experience of the law whatsoever. You also have people who have a very interesting direct experience of the law. So someone like Julius Malema <laughs> sits on the JSC, I think he's the longest standing member, he's been there for 10 years, and has had direct experience of the law and that he's involved in a lot of litigation. And um, when Moto Jane was applying for an elevation from the High Court to the Supreme Court of Appeal, uh, Julius Malema said to him, why should I give you this promotion after what you did to me in our litigation? Um, and so there was a, um, a dispute between Malema and Trevor Manuel. Um, Motajane held that Malema had to pay half a million rand in defamation damages, uh, awarded in favor of Trevor Manuel. And so, you know, Malema says the quiet part out loud, which is you're not getting this job because of what you did to me. So here there's a clear conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Parliament then says to him, listen, this is very unparliamentary, you should apologize. What does Julius do? He takes it to court and he wins. <laughs> so there's a sense in which the judiciary has become another object for capture. And the idea is get our guys in there, um, you know, help them to support our agenda. Um, I must say that you know, among my colleagues, we've become more and more despairing. Um, I was at a News24 conference recently and the journalist said, you know, we're very worried about South Africa. You know, the, everything's just in a terrible state of affairs. The government's corrupt and everything's bad. And you know, But there's two things that give us hope. The one is, you know, our press is just world-class and our judiciary is world-class. And I bumped into someone who I won't name, uh, who's a, a doyen of, uh, of the media. And I said, how's the free press going? He says, it's pretty fucking bad, Mark. It's pretty fucking bad. Mm-hmm. He says, I'm sure there's uh, journalists who are taking bribes. They're not independent. There's juniorization in the newsrooms. But people like... Uh uh, IOL, um, what's yeah. it, Iqbal Serve? Yeah, yeah, that's hardly it's it's compromised in some. And of course, we also know that the, uh, the 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 big media houses are controlled by people who absolutely have an agenda and are politically involved. Yeah, and it's the nice private guys at Cliff Central here to tell you what's really true, guys. Yeah, um, and then he said yeah. to me, "So, Mark, what which is why like you a- started doing your podcast with us. <laughs> oh, I've roped you in as our, our know-it-all." Exactly. Uh, he says, Mark, what are things like in the judiciary? You know, I've just been told this is wonderful. And I said, it's pretty fucking bad. <laughs> How, okay. Do do we have any mechanisms to bring about the change that you you alluded to a little earlier on? Like, given to me, it sounds a little insane to have, uh, as you said, Julius, to sit on the JSE and literally say, you're not getting this job because of what you did to me. Do, do we have any checks for that kind of stuff, or can he be removed? Can he be removed? Yeah, yeah. That's what he's so asking. what 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 do we do about this? Yeah, so there's a sense in which this is often said that our constitution was drafted with Mandela in mind, with uh, you draft for angels. Um, I always think that you know, as a liberal, uh, I'm very worried about human nature, and I think uh, fearing the worst of people is a good thing when you're drafting laws. Mm. That you want to think. How could someone break this rule? How could they use it to their advantage? How could they use it to hurt people? And let's try and ensure that they can't. In other words, always expect the very worst. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or at least uh, you could take the view, which is prepare for the worst and expect the best. Um, so that when the bad thing happens, you know what to do about it. But, but when you're writing these laws and when you're creating the systems of government, imagine a Hitler rather exactly. than, than you know, a Mother Teresa. Because mm. if Mother Teresa is running things, you don't actually need the law, right? Mm. Um, the point is that think about the kind of person who's become, it's like become when a politician. It's like when you do an antenuptial contract before you get married. It's not because you're in love and everything's going to go great. You're thinking about what happens if it all falls apart. If it all apart. falls apart, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly it. Um, you know, you've got to pray for the worst. And as you say, that it's a similar awkward thing. It's like, 
the newlyweds are getting together and they're like, we love each other and, you know, we couldn't possibly dream of this wonderful union ending. You know, of course, in South Africa, I think 50% of marriages end in divorce. So it's a good thing to prepare for. Um, and also it's to say when that thing happens or if that thing happens, we have some rules in place to ensure this happens as peacefully as possible. Instead of having a fight, because we don't know what's, what governs our relationship, we've got some privately written rules in this, sure. in this ANC. So the thing that you'd want, oh, okay, this person is now emerged as a Hitlerite figure. Um, well, we have some laws to hold them to account as opposed to, we thought they were going to be an angel, now what? And so the JSC is one of those bodies we thought were going to be an angel, and they're not. Um, mm. And so what you have then is the kind of exertion of political pressure. So um, because you've got different bodies that are appointing those figures, um, you've had a capturing over time. So Dali and Porfu, um could wear two hats. So he could be you know, highly ranked within the EFF, but he wasn't appointed by the EFF to sit there. He was appointed by uh, the Bar Council, the General Council of the Bar. Okay, So in other words, <laughs> the expert lawyers um, got lobbied internally to say, you should pick Dali. Um, and eventually at some point, uh, Advocates for Transformation, who the body who kind of pushed that, got so embarrassed by Dali's antics that they said, we're going to withdraw support and someone else will go there. Um, and so you have to have these other mechanisms <laughs> to hold people to account. But the worry is that what happens when things get so bad that there's no legal mechanism to hold people to account? It's bloodshed. Um, mm. It's the people you know getting so upset. And I think about um, the footage I saw in Sri Lanka. So there you Don't had- even go that far back. Just look at what's happening in Ecuador right now. They, they literally had criminals storm the TV stations. They've taken the president yeah. out. It doesn't take a lot. It's just a small minority of really, really angry people to cause absolute chaos. Yeah, sure. I mean, Sri Lanka is interesting because there what you had was allegations of corruption against the government. Yeah. And they just had the early stages of load shedding. And the people said, um, over no our way. dead bodies. They walked yeah. right up to the presidential palace in their thousands and they just shut down everything. Yeah. See, this is part of the reason why I feel like South Africans aren't mad enough. We're just not angry enough. Like, you... I understand how difficult it is to assemble people in one just direction. Be careful what you However, wish for. Be careful what you No, wish I'm not for. asking for violence. I'm just saying, <laughs> it, you know, the majority of us live our day-to-day lives trying to just figure out what we do on this day just to make it through today. Yes. That half of the time, the problems that are overarching our lives, we just don't have the time to deal with. And by my estimation, from what I've seen so far, it doesn't seem like we're angry enough. Why is it... And this is an ongoing joke. Why is it that so many countries that have democratic in their name are actually the worst countries? North Korea, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Old East Germany was the German Democratic Republic. And they were anything but free, fair, lovely places to live. Still not. Yeah. I mean, there's a sense, I suppose, in which when people start to uh, use wonderful titles to refer to themselves because they're trying to cover something up mm. – um, so, you know, those that say, you know, we're very democratic often are the least democratic. Mm. Um, you know, those that, you know, speak out in the name of freedom often aren't and they want to control people. So there is that that worry. Um, there is a sense in which you have this these interesting language games that get played. I mean, I think South Africans are angry, they're dispirited, but they're often angry in the, with the wrong people. So if you think about the kinds of um, scapegoats that are identified for South Africa's genuine problems. It's things like white monopoly capital. Mm. You know, it's we should be angry with big business. But it's pretty obvious to anybody if you have a conversation with them. I spoke to a guy who's, uh, I think, would have described himself as a, a black nationalist communist. And I said to him, um, just in your day-to-day, you know, 
what's your experience like with the state? And the more he reflected on it, the more he realized it's pretty awful. And the more he realized the private sector was uh, pretty good and that all the things in his life that were working came from the private sector. And within 10 minutes, he realized, oh, hold on, maybe <laughs> maybe my ideological foundations are faulty. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and that my eye shouldn't be directed at, you know, um, uh, big corporates who've done a wonderful job in South Africa, despite all of the very hard conditions they have. It's, um, you know, pernicious government. So I mentioned earlier, I gave this little tagline about maybe you're wasting your time voting. There is a sense in which I would like to see increased voter apathy. I think a lot of people have been voting for terrible, pernicious parties. How could that be good if less people voted? Well, I, I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah, I yeah. may or may not agree with you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I suppose, first of all, so let's think about Australia where you're obliged to vote. Okay. No, 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 no. You're forced. Yes. Mm. Yeah, you're forced to vote. If you don't vote, you get um, fined. So everyone must exercise this right to vote, and it's no longer a right and an obligation. Mm. I think if you're going to have a system like that, you ought to have a box that says vote of no confidence, um, and every vote of no confidence gets an empty seat uh, in parliament, which automatically votes no for whatever is being uh, proposed. And I think that's one way to give voice to people. So just because you don't vote, you could have multiple reasons. The one is you go, I don't like any of the options on the table. I think they're all despicable. If you're forced between voting for Stalin and Hitler and you want to go neither, that seems like a legitimate option. And the other one is I just can't be bothered, right? Um, And it's hard to listen bigger between the two categories. But there is a sense in which many people have been voting for the African National Congress for a long time out of some false sense of obligation for it being the liberation movement. And it's a really bad thing for everybody that the ANC remains in power. And so I'd like it if those people stopped voting. I'd like it more if they went and voted for you know someone in the multi-party coalition and said, okay, well, those guys are going to bring in some good reforms. But I'll live with the intermediary position of, okay, just don't vote. Um, there is a difficult thing that you find with voting, which is that we aren't in a big brother house. So someone will say to me, oh, I'm voting for so-and-so for strategic purposes. Um, I go, okay, that works when there's 20 people in the vote. It doesn't work when there's you know, 20 million voters. Uh, so there's no strategic vote. All there is is a symbolic gesture. Yeah, I, I met a guy in Cape Town. He was an Uber driver and I spoke to him. A smart guy. He had some ideas around how the bank could probably m- m- manage the election better than the IEC could because he said, we trust the banks with our money but we don't trust the IEC. Yeah. And, and I thought, okay, well, there are lots of complicated reasons that won't work, but not bad as a, as a founding idea, as a, as a thought. I mean, they do run lots of other things. Anyway, we got into a discussion. It wasn't even a long ride. And then he, he invariably told me he's voting in his local elections, in the provincial elections, but he has no interest in voting in the national one. And I said, why? Don't you care about me? Are you just saying fuck you to those of us who don't live in the Western Cape? And he said, ooh, I mean, you made me feel bad now. I think I'll have to. I said, to be going to the polls anyway. Doesn't it make sense for you to vote for the party you would vote for provincially mm-hmm. at a national, a national level? level yeah. But he's trying to be nuanced, I suppose. He's trying to be different and interesting and thoughtful. But it, it's not going to make a shred of difference. Better that he votes in both and just blanket votes for the party he thinks is going to be best. Right? There's no point in trying to... You vote. You know, these people who vote differently in the municipal, they're differently in the provincial, differently in the national, and they think they're being terribly uh, curious and interesting. Mm. My favorite version of this, I did some election monitoring in 2014, and so there was a guy from the EFF there. So I jokingly said to him, you know, who are you voting for? <laughs> he said, well, actually, I'm splitting my vote. 
I was kind of shocked. <laughs> so I said, how are you splitting the votes? He says, well, I want Julius in Parliament, but I want the DA running the province. You know, because he thought, not oh, in my wow. backyard oh, wow. am I going to have this party running things. Um, <laughs> and so that's interesting. But again, it's it's curious because you can't you can't shift the needle. What you can do is if you um, tell other people to vote in a certain direction, if you have a bit of a loud hailer and you can uh, rally up the troops, then you can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, the way I put it is, you know, if you say I want to help fill up the Val Dam, and so I'm going to urinate into a thimble and pour it in, that's what your private vote's like. But mm-hmm. if you're like, I'm going to get tens of thousands of people to piss in the Val Dam, well, then it'll make a difference. Can you clear up something for me, if you don't mind? Um, I've heard this uh, this rumor a couple of times, uh, especially in my neighborhood. Uh, I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory or if it's true. So uh, a lot of people are of the belief that if you voted in the elections, let's just say the previous elections, and you voted for the ANC, and this time around you choose not to exercise your right to vote, is it true that they just count your previous vote again for this election? No, definitely not. Well, <laughs> yeah, I've heard it a couple of times. One would hope not. Uh, first mm. of all, there's no record of how you voted. So okay. if you think about uh, how that process works, there, when you vote, your vote is private. Mm-hmm. Um, you because it's not like you write your name on it or anything. No, you yeah. don't write your name on it. Your name, your name is gathered at a certain pro- part of the process. So mm-hmm. you arrive, they check, are you on the voters' roll? Um, they cross your name off a list. Right. Then you vote. Mm. Um, one of the things that's pretty interesting. So when I was doing the election monitoring was not everyone can read. So the idea is that you they then ask someone to to read out the ballot. So I'd watch the election official uh, read out the ballot, and as she was going down, she read out the political party AIC, okay, which is, the I think, the African Independence Congress. And the voter says, oh, yeah, that's who I want, AIC. So I sort of thought, maybe, maybe you're one of the few people who's heard of this political party, maybe not. So I said to the election official, maybe you should continue reading the ballot. Goes AIC ANC. No, 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 no. That's the that's one. That's the one. Yeah. Now the AIC got one and a half percent of the vote. I'm entirely sure that's just an error that they were just yeah. strategically placed above ANC, which helped them. Um, they were basically a political party that had one thing they cared about, which is changing a boundary in between two provinces. That's it. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> that was their whole raison d'être. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, what are the other systems? Because we, we're running out of time here, but I think it's really useful to have you here, and I'm going to tap into as much as you know about this. What are the other systems you could have in place of a constitutional republic or a democracy? You mentioned oligopoly, but but there's oligarchy, there's monarchy, there's autocracy. Mm. Let's just look at those three and then maybe you want to add in some of the more bizarre ones. There's theocracy too, so we define these for us. Oh, I hope we don't turn into a theocracy. Well, we, we don't. I, I mean, what kind of religion do we... Uh, what, <laughs> be a very soft sort of Christian thing? Yeah. 80% of the population? Ish. Yeah. Ish. Yeah, interesting thing to think about those systems. So if you think about uh, a theocracy that operates, think about Iran. Yeah, um, that's a great example. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there you have this tension. So you actually have a lot of Iranians who are quite secular, yes. mm. uh, who are sick of being oppressed by you know these religious leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know one of the big protest stories of last year was um, you know the morality of police um, beating a woman to death for not wearing uh, not wearing a headscarf that covered her hair properly, and. At some point, the people said this is just you know, unconscionable. And so you had these mass protests of people burning their headscarves and pushing back. And so there was a, this threat to the, you know, to the religious leaders. Um, and at some point, they sort of backed down. At other points, they sort of accelerated. Um, 
funny enough, I mean, you think about monarchies. I mean, you can go back in time where you really just have this divine right of kings and, you know, the king runs everything. And some places have preserved their monarchies and run them in parallel. So if you think about the UK, you know, the, the queen is a monarch not just for for the UK but for a few other places as it's well. The king. Of course, yeah, the, king. the king. now, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so although the Australians, I think, aren't going to put Charles in their money yet. Um, but the role that King Charles is going to play is uh, restricted. So officially, sure. I think you can remove a prime minister by asking the king. Um, and the Australians uh, did this because one of their prime ministers wandered into the ocean and got lost. And they had to have a mechanism for his removal. So they asked the queen. Um, <laughs> but in South Africa, we have uh, the monarchy as well. We have a whole bunch of different monarchies. Um, I think they were consolidated into a smaller number at some point. But it's interesting that we have this uh, other parallel system. And in some ways, they do have some actual powers in a way that the, the king doesn't in the UK. So they kind of act a little bit more like the mayor would of municipality. And so you can hand out some largesse and you can run certain and they things. they own large tracts of land either in their own name or in a trust. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you think about the Ngayama Trust. Um, so we are a kind of mixed system in some ways in that right. um, this, these royal families, there are rules to determine who gets to be royal, who's not. You have you know, various disputes between people claiming to be you know, the heir apparent. Um, and we keep that up. I think it's sort of one of the things we just almost never talk about. We also no. have this parallel judicial system. We're sort system. of embarrassed by it, and, uh, and and these kings have hardly covered themselves in glory. No, 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 mm. they haven't, yeah. Um, and and you have this uh, these traditional courts, so mm. which have the power to adjudicate um, certain kinds of disputes, one of which, which I think people will find absolutely bizarre, is that um, if you are found guilty of witchcraft, you can be punished through exile through our courts. So, in other words, if you're a woman who has a nice place and other people get jealous of By the way, of it, are women allowed in these traditional courts at all? Uh, as far as I know, not. Yeah. 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 So, From what so I've seen, yeah. If you're a no. woman who, let's say, is uh, physically assaulted by some guy, a guy goes to represent you. You're not mm -hmm. even there. Mm -hmm. There's no woman in there. Uh, and then these guys decide what to do with you. Yes, they don't have criminal powers, but they have um, so some sort of civil powers. Mm. So you could have a situation but where wait, you, you were telling me about witchcraft. Let's just finish that because that sounds it's fantastic. Like yeah, yeah. So first of all, we would think about how do you work out whether you're a witch? Fantastic. Well, we could Monty Python it and sort of try and drown you. And if you if you drown, well, then you were you know a woman. If you float, then you're a witch. It's, it's, <laughs> that would, that would be you. the hardest thing to prove. But you know. somehow, no. like, so basically, the line would be like. Well, if we get to exile you, then we have a reason to take your stuff. Um, so why don't we just say that you were singing the wrong songs under the moonlight at the wrong time, and uh, then we can kick you out. You know, I mean, there's a sort of line that exiles a fate worse than death. So it's bizarre that you have this power. Um, and then there's various other sort of disputes. You know, so pronouncing on um, uh, divorces, and you know, mm. and as I said, like you're. I mean, one of the cases that we studied in law school was a situation where. Uh, uh, Grandmother was attacked by a guy uh, with a kitchen knife and he chopped off her finger. Um, and so, as you say, the male elders got together and decided the dispute and they said, the guy must come and um, do chores for the grandmother. So it must be in her house and uh, you know clean things up for her because you know, she can't do that with her finger gone. So this is this idea of restorative justice. But can you imagine if every single day you had to be in the company of the person oh, who attacked you? Yeah. You know, that's, it's a that's creative horrible. mechanism, but it's quite an unusual one. And one is that she didn't have much say in. It's kind imposed. of torture. No, she was imposed on her. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. so we, we, I think we kind of ruled out monarchy and, and theocracy. Mm. 
oligarchy or aristocracy, kind of the same thing. The one is money. The other one is social status, class. And then we've got autocracy. Autocracy has come under quite a lot of undue criticism, mostly because of the 20th century. Mm. But autocracy was considered a respectable form of government for a very long time and is in many parts of the world and always has been. And, you know, if you don't like it, well, then we just put you in a gulag. So there's no that's one right. that's going to complain. You just <laughs> yeah, poll the populace right. and everybody's happy yeah. with it. You don't it's even like, poll them. <laughs> in a real autocracy, you don't even bother. <laughs> you produce a poll, but you don't ask yeah. the people. You know, right. the famous case of Hitler's Anschluss of, uh, of Austria was 98% of people were in favor. <laughs> no, it's always in these, in these countries like the Central African Republic or, you know, um, Gabon or whatever. It's always these incredible election results of like 90% plus. Everybody's convinced this is the right way to go. There's an interesting um, thing that you find in Orthodox Judaism. So you would have a death penalty that could be imposed by your judges. And the the rule was you'd have 70 judges. And if all 70 of them voted um, that you should be executed, you were automatically acquitted. I think that's bizarre, but you had this massive consensus. Everybody agreed that you were a murderer. And they say, exactly. They say, if the consensus is that high, you just don't find that in nature. You find people disagree mm. with each other. Mm. So what's likely is that you've had some poisoning of the system. So those countries where it's a guy gets in by 90%, we know that, that something it's went wrong. Completely so wrong, yeah. yeah. That's so clever. Yeah, that's pretty genius. Are there other forms? What about a qualified franchise to round this up? Because people talk about that too. I was in a conversation just last night about this. with Someone says, you know, if you're a prisoner, you don't get a vote. If you are a, um, a person on welfare, you only get half a vote. If you're a person who employs people, for every person you employ, you get a vote because technically you're responsible for them. Mm. If you have a matric, you get a vote. If you have a university bachelor's degree, another one. Master's, another one. Doctor, another one. If you are in a, a job where you have massive responsibilities over many people's lives and you have to make decisions every day that could be extraordinarily wide and sweeping, you may have an argument for an extra vote or two. People wouldn't go for that, though, because the foundation of our democracy in this country anyway is that every pe every person is equal to every one other One man, one vote. Under the law. Mm. I'll say a couple of interesting things about it. One is, which is, in South Africa, we've had qualified franchises in different ways. So um, before apartheid, you had proof that you own property in order to vote. Sure. And so uh, in, in the Cape province, uh, there were... Uh, colored people who could vote uh, because they were property owners. Um, and then, of course, during apartheid, you had a racialized franchise, which is entirely arbitrary. So you prevent people from voting based on their melanin levels. Yeah, um, I mean, some and people were slightly darker colored people. Some people were slightly lighter black people. And mm -hmm. some slipped through the cracks and for what did somersaults. I mean, some interesting things on this front. It's <laughs> worth sort of pausing here for a second, which is that, as you say, we had the system of racial classification. Yeah. Um, and you could apply to an administrator to have your race changed. And every year it would be published, and Henderson doesn't make a big deal about this, to kind of destabilize the idea of race as being a real thing. So, but how many people change from color to white or from you know black to Indian? And you know, there's strange ways in which you could become Indian. I could become Indian during apartheid by marrying an Indian woman. Uh, she wouldn't have become white by marrying me. Um, so all these strange things. But why Stupid. bring this up in a way that's so, so strange? Mm. Give you another idea of a democracy. The Legal Practice Council um, has a democratic system in place to decide who will sit on the council. Okay, 
And um, the system that they had in place was to have racial set-asides, very similar to our tricameral parliament, where you had different chambers for different racial groups. So there must be one white woman, one um, black woman, one white man, one black man. Okay. So Sounds like quotas. Sounds like quotas, mm-hmm. which are illegal, um, and sounds like a racialized democracy. Um, so I took the view as soon as this rule was introduced, which is uh, we live in a society where we respect the idea of one man, one vote, and you should just respect that. Whatever the outcome is of the vote, that's where it goes. If everyone winds up being a black woman, so be it. Now, of course, what happened in practice was that the person who was disenfranchised uh, was uh, a black woman, Mayossi. So uh, she was a very well-respected advocate at the Cape. Um, she was told that, I'm sorry, we already have one of you people, so you're out. Um, we fought this in court. And literally a stone's throw away from where the tricameral parliament used to be. Uh, and our judges were not impressed by this idea uh, that we should step away from a racialized system of democracy, um, that we should embrace one man, one vote. And uh, she, was, she was kept out of the Legal Practice Council um, on the basis that she was a black woman. Uh, I mean, an astounding thing to think of in the New South Africa. Yeah, it's crazy. Unbelievable. There is one other fun little system that's worth thinking about. It's called epistocracy, um, which is also a form of a qualified franchise. But the idea is this. Um, when you go into the ballot box, you answer uh, a general knowledge quiz. Okay. If you know the basic things about the and world and your society. let's say it could society, be about civics. So let's say it could be, you know, what is the, uh, who's the president? Uh, how many powers of Parliament do we have? How many houses in Parliament do we have? Mm. Um, what is the Supreme Court? Branches of government. You could have it like yeah. that. You could, have you, could have like it on, you could have it on just how how educated are you as a person, you know? So sure. you could think about, uh, you know, can you do basic What is an stuff? amphibian? Yeah, yeah mm. exactly. And you fill in your little quiz and then you vote. And then we just have a weighting based on how, on how well you did on the quiz. So if you hit the lights out, then your vote's worth more. If you failed the quiz, then your vote's worth less. Um, And so that's one way of saying, you know, there's something horrifying about living in a society where you go, the dumb people have picked all these evil people to rule me. Why am I held hostage to this? It is horrifying. And so if you could change that, and we have had versions of it over time. So in the UK, um, I think if you went to Oxford or Cambridge, you got a double vote. Um, and the idea was you're meant to be an excellent person. Uh, I'm not so sure if we should give uh, university students extra votes given their, <laughs> given all the outlandish things they believe. I mean, I always think there's a difference between being credentialed and educated, and I'm glad that you called mm. me educated, not credentialed, mm. because I often think people who have PhDs, that's a signifier of something uh, deeply broken. The cre- someone's got to... You've got to be so credentialed to say something so stupid. You know? Yeah, <laughs> completely. Well, uh, we've got to leave it there, unfortunately, but I could talk to you about this and I'm sure you could too, Jack, for like, hours. I've, I've learned so much already. Um, certainly, I hope that we have a modicum of, of education when we go to the polls this year and I hope that we can see some differences come about because elections do change things. We, that's why they're so hard won and hard contested. Mm. So thank you, Mark. appreciate your time. Mark Oppenheimer, and we'll see you again soon. Democracy 101. Thanks, everybody. Cliffcentral.com